This is The Legal Impact, a podcast presented by the University of New Hampshire Franklin Pierce School of Law. Now accepting applications for JD and graduate programs, learn more and apply at law.unh.edu. Opinions discussed are solely the opinion of the faculty or host. Do not constitute legal advice or necessarily represent the official views of the University of New Hampshire and UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. I'm your host, AJ Kierseta, and today I'm joined by Professor Seth Ornberg, who teaches in both the residential programs and our hybrid JD program. You can learn more about the mostly online hybrid JD program by visiting law.unh.edu slash hybrid JD. Welcome back to the show. It's great to see you, AJ. Thanks for having me here. So I wanted to have an episode to dive into Twitter, but I, I wanted to ha- wait till we got to a point where things, I don't know if I'd call them leveled out, but they're at least a little more stabilized compared to where they were a few months back. Um, be- because from a business perspective and uh, acquisition perspective, it- it's a fascinating case study of what happens when just just some random person says, hey, I'm going to buy your company. And then there's a back and forth like, yes, I am. No, I'm not. You're going to buy it. It goes to the courts. And then he ends up buying it anyway. So I, let's start off at the very beginning. I, I got the feeling most people have forgotten what actually kicked this off. And like he outright said, I'm, I'm just going to buy Elon Musk said he was going to buy Twitter for just a random. It seemed at the time a pretty random number that was way inflated from what people expected. You know, I think there's a couple misconceptions around around how this all started. So I'm really, I'm really glad for a chance to to talk about it with you and to kind of iron some of this out. So the um you know, the beginning of all this really started in 2022 when Elon Musk uh, at the beginning of that year started investing in Twitter, presumptively because he thought Twitter was undervalued and or he thought he could take it over and increase its value that way and 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 profit from it. Um, we all know who Elon Musk is, right? He's uh, you know mogul of Tesla and SpaceX, and I don't know whether or not he sleeps in between running multiple billion-dollar companies and is one of the world's richest people. I suppose maybe he didn't need to make more money, but but we presume that somebody makes a bid like this because they see some some profit opportunity. So that's that's sort of where this starts. Is we assume uh i assume that that musk um, wanted to, to profit from this opportunity and the thing is that when you buy a lot of a company eventually you have to of a public company if you buy enough of a public company you have to disclose that and on march 14th musk um uh, filed with the sec uh or rather I, I believe it was actually on april 4th he disclosed it on march 14th that he had uh, acquired uh, the the requisite amount of shares that he had to make that disclosure, and that kicks off a couple things, right? So when when you find out that the world's richest person has a nine point two percent stake in a public company, uh, and then files with some um, seeming interest in increasing that share, there are questions about whether that person is looking to buy all of it. So I think that that's sort of the that's where this story really begins for me because that's when the lid got taken off. That's where the intentions got revealed, and and so there's you know public documents around that. And, and, and from a stock purchase perspective, a Wall Street perspective, that's huge. I mean, there's a lot of people investing in Twitter. Someone is having this come out like this, which I believe if I remember right, he was actually later publicly disclosing that he he made this uh, this huge uh, acquisition of the company at the time and like many people didn't know like buy or sell like that could have a long-term Im- implications to the future of a uh, public company yeah 
um, the, the, the market's reaction immediately was very positive. So when this went public, um, if, if memory serves, shares went up like a 25% or, or 27% on that day. And that's a huge increase. Um, and so the markets reacted to this move by Elon Musk to, to, to buy up Twitter uh, positively. Now, that could have been for a couple of reasons. I mean, our, our listeners are surely familiar with the very basic concept of supply and demand. So there's a limited amount of something called Twitter stock. And as demand for that increases, whether that's through a billion people or one billionaire, um, the price should increase, right? We have same supply, increased demand, price goes up. So, so that's all normal. And when someone finds out that there's a person out there who's really interested in buying a lot of what you have, you might value what you have more. So markets tend to react positively when you see these announcements um, and they react, but they reacted unusually positively. And, and that's, that's the beginning of a very, very different story. Yeah. Uh, it, like it, it's very unique because at, at least publicly, his initial interest in kind of flirting with the idea of going into Twitter goes way back to when, like at least in, in uh, the mythos of the purchase, let's place it that way, is he was really upset that the Babylon Bee, a right-wing satirical website, was banned from the platform. And, and that kind of started, like, over time, him more and more kind of going into this realm. So, like, what impact from a do you, do you think it had that this could have been for a philosophical reason as opposed to necessarily a business acquisition, which it may, who knows ultimately which was the chief motivator? I, 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 think, I think you're right to question that because I, I, I have a hard time understanding Elon Musk's uh, motive, various motivations. He seems to really like making jokes about 420 and like comes up with you know numbers and dollars around you know marijuana jokes. So I guess when you have, what is it, 100, um, if you can lose $182 billion in a year and still be the third richest person in the world, I guess this is kind of funny money. And so maybe it's not, uh, you know, the, but the typical assumption is that he's a rational actor looking to maximize his value. But as you pointed out, very much could have been something else about him trying to maximize free speech or change the nature of communication or, um, and, and certainly he's been making a lot of noise around around Twitter. Um, I guess from a, my own opinion, for what it's worth, is I don't really buy it because there's other technologies. And if you really wanted to change the the forum of that communication, I don't know if buying Twitter was the approach so much as supporting Mastodon and, and other sort of new platforms. But we'll never really know what's happening in the minds of Musk. Um, I don't think the market thought that either. I think the market saw this as a profit maximizing opportunity, and that's why we saw that share price spike. Um, and and really, he was he. I think he's more of a genius than we realize in terms of manipulating PR because he was able to present it like I'm I'm this champion of American civic virtue, and um, and the markets are like, okay, cool, whatever you have to say to make this go, um, but we think you're going to pay us more than our shares are currently worth, so we're going to price that into our current value. Yeah, and this kind of leads into the dilemma that ended up happening or the back and forth that ended up happening between the Twitter board and Elon Musk with regards to the purchase because there there was this back and forth like Elon started to back out at one point. It, there was threats that it was going to be going to the courts. I mean, if it did end, end up going to the courts and the courts made a decision on this one way or another, like would that set a new precedent? I have never 
heard of a person being forced to buy a company. Um, it's almost like forcing someone to marry you, right? It's like you're in, yes, I mean, an engagement, you could have a contract to marry, right? You could get engaged and, and make mutual commitments, but um, courts don't really enforce those in part because that marriage is probably not going to work out well. Um, and so for societal reasons, we don't we don't enforce those kind of personal obligations. So here we have the, um, I guess, Delaware corporate equivalent of, of a marriage. Right. Um, and, and this dance that's happening. So I think it, it would have been super interesting. And my colleagues who, who write about Delaware law were were having a field day with this topic. It was probably the most interesting thing that almost happened in Delaware law um, in this in this decade. But let me just pull back before we even get to that yeah. battle, because so, you know, Twitter, Twitter invited, you're right, Twitter invited Elon Musk to join the board of directors. This is actually kind of a typical move because have you ever heard the expression, um, keep your enemies, uh, your friends close and your enemies closer? Yeah. Yeah. So, they were hoping to, to settle him down a little bit. It didn't work out quite that way. <laughs> yeah. I mean, oftentimes you haven't, if you have a rational actor, Right. And again, we're, I'm just I'm just I'm I'm not uh, sure Elon Musk is in the case. of I mean, economically rational. I mean, yeah. first and foremost, I guess I should just state my priors that economic theory based on just everyone to maximize dollars is not my not my belief structure. I think that people maximize value and they, they value all sorts of different things. They might value money. They might value ideology. They might value peace. They might value, uh, you know, power. Right. Um, but people do, I think, try to maximize what they value. It's just not necessarily everyone values money. Um, so Elon Musk, I think, was definitely rational in trying to maximize something. We don't know exactly what that something is. And the board treated him like he was trying to maximize his value in his investment. Um, I think they rightly or normally presume that he was buying these shares in order to profit from them, which is what most people, most activist investors would do. And you might bring them onto the board and say, okay, we'll give you a seat. We'll bring you into the conversation. We're gonna make reforms to management that accord with your beliefs and where this company has to go. And in that way, we can kind of work together. The board gets to keep their jobs. The CEO gets to keep, you know, keep everyone gets to keep their jobs and uh, value goes up, everyone's happy. That is obviously not what happened. Elon Musk um, refused to join the board and then offered to buy the company, the whole company. Um, and and here's where I was hoping this is my like soapbox for a minute, right? Like uh, you give me the soapbox. It's awesome. I wanted I want our listeners to know that there's a lot of talk about how how Elon Musk made this um, what they're calling a tender offer. And the response was the board. Uh, instituted a poison pill defense to a tender offer. And my my soapbox point is that he did not do that. That's not what happened. So a tender offer from a technical perspective is where uh, a major shareholder of a company, or it doesn't even really have to be a shareholder, anyone really offers to buy the shares of stock from the shareholders. Often this is in the form of a literal advertisement, like in the Wall Street Journal, these these full page ads, sometimes called a tombstone ad, because they're kind of shaped in that they have the kind of this icon to them. And uh, if you own stock in Twitter, basically the offer is, hey, if you agree to sell me your stock in Twitter, I'll pay you X dollars for it, which is more than it's currently worth by a lot, by what we call a premium. Uh, you can think of it as a control premium. It's worth it to him to pay more because having a having a share of something that you control is presumptively more valuable than something you don't control if you 
want to change what that thing is doing. So he actually went directly to the board and he did make a takeover bid, made an offer, an unsolicited offer to buy the company, but he didn't offer that to all the shareholders. He offered it to the board who had just invited him to join. And that's when things got bizarre from my perspective, right? Because so in the story I just told, the the so brief corporate history, Marty Lipton of Wachtell Lipton created this concept of a poison pill defense. And the idea was that if somebody put out an ad in the newspaper to buy shares of a company, the board needed some way to prevent the shareholders from basically circumventing their, their better judgment, right? And, and, uh, and to protect the company from these unsolicited uh, corporate raiders, as they were called in the 80s, right? Um, these, uh, what we would might call shareholder activists now for being friendly towards them. So um, this is a strategy that is meant to prevent a, a, a takeover through a proxy uh, solicitation uh, through a tender offer, but that's not what ha- that's not what Elon Musk did. So the board responded in this like very aggressive response of of instituting a defense. It was just a weird play, yeah. uh, and I think that's where things started to really spiral um, because that that really set a they set an odd tone. Um, so I don't know. I'll I'll pause there to kind of see if that if that if you have any reflections on that. But I, I think that's the weirdest thing that happened was around April fourteenth or fifteenth when. This this offer was made to the board, and, and the board responded with this very prophylactic poison pill defense that is a defense to something that wasn't happening. Yeah, as someone who approaches this uh, from a journalistic perspective, which is the way I was looking at it, and it's just a general Twitter user who enjoys the platform a fair bit, it, it was it, it kind of showed how to me it made it look like both sides were were activists for their own purpose like like twitter the twitter ecosphere as a as a corporation is very especially in recent years has has been pointed at multiple times like you're acting from a certain political perspective the way you're treating the accounts and such who would be able to stay on the platform the social policies that were pointed out in the Joe Rogan experience especially really brought a highlight to a certain amount of that and it, it kind of turned into this little mini culture war slash business war all at the same time it, it was fascinating to to watch it was definitely a culture war, and um, and it turns out that there are there were losers in that war. Like when when, when Musk got the company, he evicted the the that contingent. So I don't know. It's it's hard to say that the directors were really acting on behalf of the shareholders in terms yeah. of maximizing their value, which is traditionally the director's job and and one might say their legal obligation. Uh, instead, it seemed like they might be protecting their interests in terms of keeping their jobs and keeping their politics, keeping Twitter how it was, because they didn't want the changes Musk was going to institute. Yeah. It, it, I mean, how common is it? So big. one of the big conflicting issues during the acquisition was the, the matter of bots that may or may not exist on the platform. I, I mean, to you, did that come across as just a bargaining chip that Elon Musk was trying to do to, to, to rile up the, the situation? Or it, looking back at it from a technology perspective also, which you kind of delve, delve into a bit, I mean, do you, do you feel like that was legitimate? So I think what you're referring to is sometime about a month after that, like in mid-May, must said that the deal was on hold because um, Twitter had not been 
uh, forthcoming and honest about its users it, and its value. He 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 claims that his value that he placed on it, which was um, something like thirty-eight or forty percent above the stock price, which is actually a pretty normal premium control premium. That's not really bizarre. Um, just based on just the value of controlling something versus owning it in in an uncontrolled way. So he later claimed that that value was based on um, information about its its users and 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 these bots weren't real, and there was much less traffic on the platform. and And that did strike me as as bizarre, um, because uh, for for one thing, I mean, I, I don't know. He he knows more about the ins and outs of this, but he made that offer given. The information that he had, like the rest of us do, about the company uh, as a public company, and typically, and that was not an out of line kind of um, offer. Um, and he got banks to back him, and and there were major, major investment banks that thought that value was appropriate. Uh, so it did seem like a pretext, and it raised some questions as to what he was really doing. Right. So now that rational actor theory, that value maximizing theory, in terms of money. You have some real questions here. Is, is he trying to point out something else? Was this a ploy to point out that Twitter was a fraud? Right? Was this was he really intending to buy the company? Um, and and as we'll play this out, he may not have been because he he then threatened to pull out of the deal. Right by mid June, early June, he was um, he was you know making serious waves, and and now we start to get into this uh, this this truly unusual circumstance where a company forces someone to buy it. The same person, that same company, the same board that had very recently instituted a prophylactic poison pill to prevent him from buying it. And that's weird. The whole situation's weird. It's like you don't know who, what anyone really wants to get out of it, whether it's like along everything we've already talked about, like just instead of just rehashing it. Like, like it was it's just fascinating. I mean, it feels like this is something that's going to be looked into for a long time for via different authors and academics say this is this is what happens when you introduce a cultural impact and a business impact all at the same time and one person with just a crazy amount of money that just wants to uh, throw a wrench in the works. My own, I, I, I don't have a hard time seeing the board's perspective. They wanted to keep their jobs. Yeah. They wanted to keep Twitter like it was because of their, well, most people want to keep their jobs. These jobs are cushy. Oh, yeah. Working at Twitter was a lot, and, and I think the employees too. Like if you were an employee of Twitter before Musk, your life was probably better than afterwards. You had more freedom, less working hours. You're working remotely. It's the pandemic, right? Directors get paid a ton of money for doing what they're doing. And when this guy buys it, you're gone, right? Or that lifestyle is gone. So I have trouble really seeing the directors as being um, working in the best interest of the shareholders and their value. I think that they were being, you know, I, I, I have doubts about them fulfilling their fiduciary obligations there. But then again, like we talked about, Elon Musk kind of coming back. It's hard to know if he really wanted to buy this company or he was just trying to poke holes in what he saw was a really problematic organization. So I, I want to jump ahead a little bit because we're already twenty minutes in. But the like I got like that that's the takeover part of it. After he took over the company, there was there was he did his reman his reworking of how the organization structure got rid of a crazy amount of employees and started dive. What seems like he started diving into how the company was operating during the time before the takeover and. 
introduce the and we're, let's phase over to the Twitter files for a little bit because it's just fascinating. Once again, from a journalistic perspective, it, it was fascinating. But I'm sure from a legal and business perspective, it. it it must be really unique to be able to have to see, have journalists go in and look at the private files, communications, and everything with how the company was working for for just multiple years, just ten, hundreds of thousands of files probably at this point. And this is uh, uh, independent reporters doing it too, which is very unique, where it's Matt Taibbi, Barry Weiss, and some others that have been, have been involved with it. What was your take on this? Uh, the Twitter files coming out? Typically, a person who takes a company private does so to reduce their disclosures. So I don't know if there's a story in history that looks like this, where someone took a company private in order to publicize all its nasty inner workings and, and to expose all of its problems. So um, that may, I mean, I, I don't, don't maybe, I should say, don't quote me on this on a live podcast. Like I would have to research that more, see if that ever happened before, but that was really unusual. And it points toward your theory, right? That that Musk was trying to do something other than maximize Twitter's value, but maybe was trying to engage in some kind of civic change. And obviously he's a huge advocate of, of what he would consider to be free speech, right? And 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 uh, and, and discourse. And um, the fact that um, the company was engaging in kind of shadow banning and all sorts of these practices uh, should alert us to caution and should caution us about social media more generally. I, I personally think that that was a hugely positive step forward in our um, national understanding of the role of social media in society. And I don't know, I can't imagine why someone would burn their money like that, uh, except for, you know, um, I guess he really believed in in this kind of social social change. Um, I, I've written in other, uh, you know, and I, I might have actually talked about it in your podcast before, but I, I've written about social media, and and we we have this immunity for social media. Um, social media corporations are protected by Section two hundred and thirty of the Communications Decency Act, and we did that back back in the mid nineties. We were trying to figure out how Twitter and uh, sorry how. Prod, not Twitter, right? How CompuServe and Prodigy worked, right? With the dial-up modems and things like that. And I am on board with the idea that um, we've we've allowed uh, that uh, what I call the the goldfish to get too giant, right? We've protected the the giant the goldfish of these Twitter companies, and and they've grown in their protected estuary beyond their their social use. And I think that's what these files show. They show that the company was. Um, is not a public sphere is not is is not functioning in the same way that a public space would um exercising a lot of control over over who gets to say what and um and as a result uh, it, it, it it did seem that these files showed a bias in the company as to what type of content they wanted on the platform it also showed a bias towards the government which all the the connections to the FBI and CIA that have especially been revealed in recent weeks is is terrifying to I shouldn't be editorializing in such a way but it's terrifying that that the government was directly working with these platforms on the back end to, to say this should be posted this shouldn't be posted this account should be there this other account shouldn't be there um 
there are um, there are so many layers of. Challenge. I mean, we all we obviously can can look back to Snowden, and remember how you know Snowden's leaks really transformed how the National Security Administration was able, like how much lateral freedom. So th- this is like a Snowden level uh, kind of disclosure, if you will, that that should and I think is having you know huge ripple effects with how the government is involved with these companies, but. I share your concern that Twitter was obviously deeply interested in, in supporting particular government interests, and and um, sounded like some of the allegations. I mean, I haven't I haven't reviewed them to know whether they are true or not, but the allegations seem to point to a connection between this company and the Democratic Party. And um, if those are true, th- those are even more troubling because it's not even the government, but but a, a, a faction of the government that is you know working with. You know, private industry. This is the military-industrial complex that Eisenhower warned us about. And uh, if these things are true, and, and again, they have not been proven to be true to my satisfaction, but but if they're true, they're 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 really concerning. Military-industrial complex, right on your phone. It's terrifying concept. <laughs> yeah, as, as on your thirteen-year-old's phone, right? I know, right? I mean, it's terrifying. Uh, so let's wrap up here. I mean, what? What do you think is going to uh, be going forward with with the the Twitter universe at this point? And um, yeah, just in general, I mean, it's I feel like there's going to be years of things coming from the Twitter files, this acquisition and everything. Well, I think first off, public I mean, one thing that has already happened is public confidence in social media has been shaken. And um, we'll see how that shakeup results like my. Like I, like I was articulating, my, my confidence has been shaken, but nothing has been proven to my satisfaction yet. And I, I'm not going to rule on on this until I really have seen the facts and the discovery. But, but just the fact that there's a general incredulity in uh, American society about whether social media is accurate and whether or not it's presenting, you know, unbiased view and whether it is a replacement for the public square. I think that's healthy, because. Um, these are private companies. They are not the public square. And a lot of people were kind of uh, getting there. You know, there's all these reports about fake news on on Facebook, right? And other, it wasn't just Twitter, but just Americans' consumption of social media as if it were news, as if what was happening there constituted the kind of journalism that, you know, I'm going to use quotey fingers, real journalists do, where they're, they're bound to a code of journalistic ethics. Um, I think it's really good that our um, our confidence in that was shaken. What happens from there is questionable. I mean, there have been efforts for others, including Donald Trump, right, to create other social media platforms, which I, I, I worry are just going to be. You can choose which adulterated content you want, which uh, you can just you can live in one echo chamber or the other. There are you know, new advents. I think the popularity of this Mastodon platform. It's really a technology, but you know the, the Mastodon open source technology is being used to create new social networks that can't be moderated in this way. is is a really interesting, um, but also challenging development, because as these uh, basically as the market shifts from believing in Twitter to believing in Mastodon, we're going to move from a moderated to an unmoderatable uh, mode of communication. And we're seeing some huge problems with that already. 
um, some things that violate the Geneva Convention. So um, some of these content platforms, which are unmoderated, feature footage of the um, the 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 uh, you know evidence of Russian aggression, which is important to see, but but constitutes footage which would be very troubling for our listeners and, and probably violates Geneva Convention prohibitions against against showing certain things. Um, there have been you know troops that have been using some of these and tweeting things out and then having buildings you know targeted. So I don't know if the world is going to get better very quickly uh, by moving from a moderated platform to an unmoderated one. Uh, but I'm glad we're asking some serious questions about the role of social media in society because we had believed in it too deeply. And uh, and this has shaken our faith in a institution which never merited our trust. So what do we do with that distrust? I think that's the question that we're all gonna have to work on answering. Um, and from you know my perspective, re removing the immunity from these platforms would you know put uh, what I would say tradition called traditional journalism uh, with with its ethics and its responsibility and its liability for falsehood uh, on a more level playing field with social media, quote unquote, journalism. I, I'd like to see that. I, I guess I'd like to see a rebound of um, of the kind of journalism that I experienced growing up and uh, and 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 hope that that's going to get us closer to the truth around some of these topics we're discussing. Professor Seth Ornberg, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for your time. It was great seeing you. Thanks for listening to The Legal Impact, presented by UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. To help spread word about the show, please be sure to subscribe and comment on your favorite podcast platform, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Get the back episodes of the show and podcast links at law.unh.edu slash podcast. And don't forget to tweet about this. Exactly. <laughs>